Good morning, Lakeside. I really meant that. Good morning. So oh, there you go. Good, good. All right. I know usually I rush right through it. I realized that earlier. I rush right through. I say good morning, Lakeside, and just go right on. So I gave you a chance to respond. So I am Mike Durning. Here we are again, continuing our series, Epic Plan. We're tracing through the Old Testament, looking at the links between events that brought us that amazing time when Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again for us. Today's sermon is called The Scarlet Cord, which is, for those of you not up on classic novels, a play on the Scarlet Letter, a book about a woman back in Puritan times who committed adultery and was forced by the court to wear a big scarlet letter A on her blouse for the rest of her days to warn the Puritans around her that she was a morally compromised woman. There's an element to the scarlet letter story that is very much like our story today from the word. Society looks down on prostitution. It looks down on marital unfaithfulness, and rightfully so. And it looks down on a lot of things that people commonly fall into. What is the hope for that person? In terms of Christian, uh, Christians, everyone who knows this story talks about Rahab the prostitute, or if you're reading from the old King James, Rahab the harlot. Almost every time someone mentions her, even in the Bible, she's called that as though a big letter A is sued, sewed right on her memory. And yet here is Rahab referenced in Hebrews 11. It says this, By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Hebrews 11 is the hall of heroes of the faith in the Bible. All the big hitters are there. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt under Pharaoh. Uh, Moses, the prophet. David, the king. And Rahab, the prostitute? Uh, what's going on here? Because we know the Bible strongly warns us about failure in the area of sexual morals, and yet this prostitute becomes a hero. How do they get to calling her a hero? How did she get to being called that? Uh, how do we get to an understanding of it? Uh, and what does it mean to us? And how does it all fit into epic's plan, God's epic plan? That's our mission today. In fact, our big idea today is this. A response to God in faith will always be received regardless of who you are or whatever your circumstance. Remember that. Joshua chapter 2 is where you want to be in the Bible today. It will also be on the screen in front of us while you prep for that if you're turning or doing something with your tablet. Here's the backstory. The people of Israel have been journeying from their former slavery in Egypt to the land that was promised to them. It was the land their father Abraham had been promised for them on their behalf, and they're going back after hundreds of years. Uh, while they were gone, others have moved in, the Canaanites, mean, nasty pagans. You say, oh, you're being judgmental, Mike. Uh, I'm telling you, they were unbelievable by anyone's standards today. For some, there was human sacrifice. Even at some points, infant human sacrifice performed by the parents, if you could imagine. And ritual immorality and bloodthirstiness in general. And the children of Israel are coming to get that land back and wipe out the evildoers who stand in that way. And as they came upon the land, immediately across the Jordan River stood the mighty fortress, the impressive walls of Jericho, a well-fortified city. It had to fall for the campaign to truly begin. Now, the story here is about the walls of Jericho falling down because God had promised them the victory. So the Israelites walk around the walls, and then they shout and scream, and the walls fall down. Some of you only know this story through the VeggieTales version. <laughs> with little French peace soldiers making fun of the children of Israel and telling them, keep walking, mocking them with Monty Python-esque quotes. Uh, and it was kind of like that, actually. Uh, some of you may not know the story at all, like little Billy in Sunday school. The teacher asked Billy, do you know who knocked down the walls of Jericho? 
And Billy got a frightened look on his face and said, I don't know, I didn't do it. <laughs> so Muse, the Sunday school teacher, goes to the parents and says, you know, Billy was pretty funny when I asked him who knocked down the walls of Jericho. Yeah, he claimed he didn't do it. And the dad got his wallet and said, okay, how much did they cost? <laughs> Hopefully you know the story, but if you don't, you will by the time we're done with our reading. We're going to read it now. Lydia joins me to play part in the reading. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which we, you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. So let's talk it through, shall we? Thank you, Lydia. Joshua has been promised the Lord's support in this endeavor, but just because God promises you success is no reason to fail to use all your own strength and gifts. Joshua is not going to just sit around doing nothing. He sends in spies to check out Jericho, and they do what spies always do. They, they sneak. And sneaking involves going to a place in town where nobody talks about what's going on. It's a place of prostitution. Josephus calls it an inn, and many of the rabbis try to downplay it, but the Hebrew word is not just a word for a hotel. The role of Rahab is a prostitute. Uh, these brave Israelite spies are not there for sinful purposes, but to gather information. In such a place, people would tend not to interfere with strangers coming through uh, and leaving as though visiting. Uh, and this is not unusual in towns of the time, by the way. Rahab's place of business is not only on the edge of town, it's actually built into the walls. 
while there, before they are forced to leave, a few key things happen. Number one, they get the most important intelligence they could have received. Word of the progress of the Israelites as they moved across the great desert has passed into Canaan. And for those who've had ears to hear, it's been pretty scary. Secondly, they hear the faith of Rahab. Now, this is not where we would expect to find faith necessarily, but let me talk about what we do not know. It's hard to step outside of our culture when we talk about something like this. If you're an older person in this room like me, you might assume that this woman was just a prostitute. So her reputation was very poor in Jericho. Some of the younger people in the room reading this might assume that she was probably a victim of sex trafficking from quite young and never made it out of that life until this time. She might be viewed with sympathy. The fact is, in some ancient pagan cultures, prostitution was part of the false worship of their pagan gods. In some cultures, the person might actually be considered some kind of a leader on some levels, almost like a high priestess, okay? Jericho fell, and the entire Canaanite cultures fell shortly thereafter, and we have very little information about what their culture was like. We don't know how she was received as a person in Jericho, not at all. You may note in the story that the king was aware of her and sent her a message, so saying she was not respected in Jericho is kind of guesswork on our parts, and maybe it's just wrong. What we do know is this. This is a pagan woman worshiping false gods, not allowed in the law of Moses. She was a prostitute, making a living at an entire lifestyle that is not allowed in the law of Moses. And yet, we also know this. She heard about the people of Israel going out from Egypt, the mightiest empire of the time in victory. She heard about them defeating the mighty Amorites. She heard about the other battles won. She heard no doubt about the miracles that were performed by God. And who among the desert traders would not have noticed the pillar of fire by night or the pillar of cloud by day and passed word of them on in their travels? Where Rahab, where everyone else in Rahab's town found terror, Rahab found faith. Here was a God who did something. Here was a God who was mighty. Here was a God who stood by his people. Here was a God who kept his promises. And she wanted this. She wanted to be part of this thing. And this was the beginning of faith, the beginnings of a change for her and in her. So when she met the two spies from Israel, she took a chance on them. She hid them. She misdirected the searchers. She helped them escape. And she told them why. They commit. They promise her safety in God's name and pledge their own lives in earnest. She lowers them down to the ground by a scarlet rope and they tell her to hang that out of the window so the people of Israel will know not to harm her or her family when they return. And this is where we leave things at the end of the section. What happens next? Well, the children of Israel cross over the Jordan, another miracle, much like the Red Sea, and they come upon Jericho with a most unconventional strategy. They march around it, once per day for six days, and the seventh, they march around it seven times. Then they cheer and they sound trumpets, and the walls of Jericho collapse. Now, I have walked around buildings before myself, and that's never made them fall down. <laughs> Insert weight joke here. Uh, <laughs> there are countless speculations about earthquakes and avalanches, and even tiny bugs that got into the mortar and made it weaker, all kinds of things people speculate about, all of which actually kind of take more faith than believing that God just did it like it says in the text. And who else but God could have made the commitment made by the two spies? Her house was spared even though it was built into the walls. All the other walls fall down. Her part stays standing. We pick up in chapter 6 for just a few verses where it tells us about that collapse in Joshua's orders. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. 
It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. At the time of the writing of the book of Joshua, she was still around, the promise fulfilled. Rahab lives in Israel thereafter, along with her kin. We know that she becomes so integrated with them that the great-grandson is King David. And way down the historical line from that is Jesus. Rahab is Mary's great-grandma times 30. God wrote her into his story for the ages because of her newfound faith in him. I want to spend some time with you this morning putting together what this means to us. She's a prostitute. She's an enemy from an enemy people. Her history is idolatrous pagan worship, likely of the god Yeriach, the moon god of the period. Uh, note the names Yeriach, Jericho. Almost everything they did in their worship was forbidden to the children of Israel in the Old Testament law. Israel was forbidden from interacting with those people. God did not want them to learn the ways of those people. And yet, there she is in Israel. How do you go from prostitution and pagan worship to being totally integrated into God's plan? Faith. Let's talk it out, shall we? Number one, your culture does not determine what is true. God's revelation does. Believe. In all of Jericho, in all of Canaan, there had not been one voice raised in praise of the one true God. There was worship of this whole pagan pantheon at that time. Different deities aligned themselves with different cities, but it was all this weird belief system that we wouldn't understand. Some of their gods were bloodthirsty and demanded human sacrifices, at least at times especially for parents to sacrifice their children, though that particular one, there's no record of it in Jericho as far as I've heard. Into this world was born Rahab, and she rejected it. Now, don't read too much into that. We don't know that she was hurt by it. Uh, We don't know whether she hated it. But one thing she had apparently determined was that it wasn't real. Their gods were deaf, dumb, and blind. Nothing ever good, no matter how much you begged them or asked them for things. They heard no prayers. None of them came to your rescue. And uniquely, in her whole culture, she turned from this to follow the one true God. All because she saw that he was real. And that he could be counted on. And that he rescued and delivered his people rather than just supporting a corrupt priesthood that used the people. Your culture does not determine what is true. God's revelation does. And when he does reveal himself to you, your correct choice is to believe. Let's break that down. Our culture believes in a lot of weird things, right? The culture that brought us tide-eating pod young adults is tide pod-eating young adults. I think I said it right there. Okay, is not doing much better when it comes to morals, to ethics, to what life is about. The culture chooses wrongly often and confuses every issue, right? They don't get to decide what is right or wrong or true for you. And if you count on them to be the final arbiters of truth, you'll be chasing an ever-moving goalpost of their imaginary truths. Every few years, you'll have to change or morph to get on board and be supportive of some new thing or outraged by some old thing. But it's a terrible way to find ultimate truth. God, however, reveals himself. He does it through his word. 
He does it through his Holy Spirit working in our hearts. He does it through the example of some others who follow him. Sometimes he just breaks down the door of our heart and says, ta-da, here I am. And when he does that, the appropriate response is to believe. Now, by belief, we mean something more than accepting that it's a true statement. We mean reliance upon. Rahab's faith was not honored by God because she accepted as a working hypothesis that there might be something to this one God. This, this one God has made, made everything as revealed to the Hebrew people. It was not just an intellectual thing. She put all her eggs in that one basket. She risked it all for him. She tossed all of her efforts in on the side of the one true God and his people. She didn't know how God was going to get her and her loved ones out. She just stepped forward in faith. It's what she did. And this leads us to an important thought. Light received brings more light. Light rejected brings darkness. If you're in a dark tunnel and you walk toward the light, you get more light. But if you turn your back on that light and walk away from it, what do you get? Darkness, of course. Eventually, no light. Rahab was not alone in the light she was given. Everybody in her city heard the same stories about God and the Israelites. Most of them were afraid from what she said. But Rahab took it a step further. When God speaks and you listen, you get more light. If you shut it out of your thoughts, you get darkness. So don't just listen to your culture. Listen to his voice. By the way, every culture in history thought they were the pinnacle of development, technology, culture, ethics, morals, whatever, right? We're the top, baby. But they were all grossly wrong. Lots of people in Germany in the 1930s loved Hitler. We had slaves. Doctors bled people who were sick. Whatever the details, the crowd can be wrong. It can lead you astray. Groupthink isn't necessarily thought at all. So be careful. God is calling you out from the crowd to listen to his voice and receive his truth just like Rahab did. So whether your crowd is the culture in general or some subculture of it or some political party or some movement, remember this. Nobody but God is the repository of all truth. There's error in every movement, every group, every culture. Do not be deceived. Be like Rahab on this one point. Listen to God and not your culture for truth. Okay, continuing our observations. Number two, your past does not dictate your relationship with God. Your faith does. Rahab could hardly have been more different than we expect of believers. There were stories Rahab probably never told later on in Israel. There were jokes that probably wouldn't be repeated that she knew. There were bad memories, haunting times, disgusting practices she had observed and perhaps taken part in. There were great wrongs she stood by and watched and had in the past maybe even approved of. It was an awful culture. We're never once told that she slowly reformed over time. We're only told that she believed and then she acted on it. What she had been was not what God was looking at at all. God isn't looking at your past. He's looking at your future based upon your faith now. And she demonstrated that by taking action. Faith is about a reliance that takes action. If I believe that your parachute will get me safely to the ground, I feel free to jump. If I believe the chair will hold my weight, by no means a given at my current weight, I sit. Okay? If I believe you will keep your promise, I act on it. Listen to how Hebrews describes her again. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith resulted in action. She had faith, which resulted in her giving a friendly welcome to the spies. 
Okay, here's James talking about it. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. That's James 2.25. The statement in context is profound. Her faith was counted as righteousness because she acted on it. Let me sum up with an example from my own marriage. About five and a half years ago, I was hospitalized for many weeks. Many of you remember it, uh, if you were here at the time. I went in for heartburn, and it turned out I was having a big heart attack. Very little pain. It was weird. Uh, Things went wrong. I almost died. Hung between life and death for weeks. Then I came back, but I came back different. Sorry, it's Halloween, so I thought I, you know, it's getting closer. It seemed like the right thing to do. Anyway, there's a phenomena called ICU delirium. When you're on life support of various kinds and the drugs to keep you sedated for so long and you don't sleep right, your brain goes into a weird state and mine did. And they removed the breathing tube and I could talk and I said some pretty strange things to those who were in the room. I remember thinking and saying those things, many of them. By the way, I got better, so you can't blame this sermon on delirium, okay? So just, just wanted to make that clear. But for those weeks, well, you know, I was on a secret mission on a Canadian aircraft carrier. I'm not sure the Canadians have aircraft carriers. Anyway, I was back in Nam, even though I was never there in the first place. I was a cook in a tent, not on the battlefield. Uh, my wife was supporting our home while I was in the hospital by running an opium den, like we were in 1800s China, out of a building in Detroit. By the way, strangely, the, the delusion was so clear, I actually know the street address. I know what the building looks like. It's really there. This is not an opium den in there, I think. Anyway, I was very worried for her safety, and I scolded her and told her she needed to be careful. And amusingly, very powerful, very dangerous people were trying to kill me. Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> you, you don't have no idea how sinister those people can be. <laughs> I have no idea why my brain picked Seventh-day Adventists. I didn't even know any of them at the time. Uh, uh, by the way, I think these were probably influenced by whatever was on the TV in my room at the time. I'm not sure. Here's the thing. When I would get riled or upset, my wife would tell me it wasn't true. And I'm told that when she told me, no, that's not true, you don't have to worry, Mike, I would say, fair enough, for okay, and I'd relax. Because our relationship, our marriage works that way. My faith allowed me to accept what she said so fully that I could let it go. The fact of the matter is that my faith in my wife resulted in me taking her statements so seriously that I acted on them. Now, in this case, that action was relax and stop worrying, but that's still an action. It's our response in faith, right? Same thing with this. Faith in the Bible sense is never theoretical. You know, I posit there may in fact be a God who is in fact the cause of all things, studied in a book about it. Faith in the Bible sense takes action. Anything from simple reliance and trust to leaping into action in the face of adversity or obstacles, it does something, okay? Now that we've established that faith is an utter reliance that results in action, where does that lead? It takes us to a simple conclusion. Step forward now. You don't have to know the whole plan. Rahab did not know where it was going to end, but she placed her faith in God through her actions she chose a side, and she accepted where that would lead. This is typical of every phase of our walk with God, right? For those of you just beginning your relationship with the Lord, you don't know what tomorrow means. On the other hand, I have trusted Savior, the Savior 54 years ago. I also don't know what tomorrow brings. <laughs> At every step, I've had some guesses, but I've not known the next step. This is part of faith. It means we trust in and rely on him for the next step every time, every day, over and over. Here's the great news. Unlike every other relationship you've ever had, Jesus will never fail you. Everybody else changes. God does not. He is absolutely reliable. 
uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, says Hebrews 13.8. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 1 Timothy 2.13. You can trust in him. We cannot see the next step, but he can, and he will be faithful. So just take that first step. Rahab didn't know any of that, but you do, at least now, because I just read you the verses, right? And it matches my own experience and the experience of many people in this room. You should trust him and take the next step. Okay, our third observation. Your reputation does not dictate your future with God's people. Relax. Rahab is called the prostitute in every passage she is discussed in the Bible. Now, this is perhaps somewhat of a bit of identification. Oh, they mean that Rahab, the one who used to be a prostitute. The title reminds us of the whole journey that she took, which is the wonder of her story, right? She was rescued by God because of her startling, sudden, surprising decision to have faith in him instead of all she knew before. And the fact that she stuck with her new life with God and his people demonstrates the reality of God's power as well as her sincerity, right? Maybe the same could be said about someone here, right? Your past reputation does not dictate your future with God because we're all just sinners, rescued by his grace because of our faith. Nobody ever came to God based on their own merit. Nobody ever said, I'm me and you're so lucky to have me, God. Don't you just love me? It was always about grace and mercy from God from the very beginning. Jesus, the Savior, died for us on the cross to pay the guilt price for our sins. And he asks only that we embrace him in faith, put our trust in him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say it this way, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not that we do good works to get to heaven. It's that he forgives our bad works, and any good that we do thereafter is a measure of the faith in him that his way is best. If you haven't met with him on that basis, it's time to do so. You really should. In fact, I'm going to give you that chance at the end of this sermon. I hope you'll take it. We're just sinners. We're all just that. In fact, Rahab is by no means unique in Scripture as Rahab the prostitute, accepted by God because of faith. Remember a few weeks back to Nate's sermon, Jacob was a cheater. He cheated everybody in his path. Peter had a temper and a bit of a foul mouth. He lied and he denied Jesus. David had an affair. Then he killed the husband of the woman he cheated with so he couldn't tell. And that's the nicest version of the story. Okay? Jonah ran from God and rejoiced so much in God's anger and wrath that he got mad at God for forgiving people. Paul was an accessory to a murder. Mary Magdalene, for Pete's sake, was demon-possessed. God has been forgiving people for the whole time, and he still does. Anybody who looks down on you has forgotten the truth of their own past, right? If you think it's all about being a good person, get hold of this. There is barely a hero in the Bible who couldn't have been thrown out of a church for their past. Let me say it again. There's barely a, barely a hero in the Bible who couldn't have been thrown out of a church for their past, if it was that kind of church, right? The real faith and any truly Bible-believing church is not about looking good by pretending. It's about finding forgiveness and real change by Jesus Christ. Look, I'm concerned about anyone who gets fixated on their past and as an obstacle to their future with God. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about guilt and shame. Guilt is my legal standing in the matter. Would I be found guilty? Shame is how I feel about the matter and my involvement in it. There's great news for anyone who trusts Jesus as Savior, coming to him in faith, just like Rahab turned to God in faith. There is grace and forgiveness with God. You can be declared legally not guilty because God forgives you, okay? 
uh, forgives you through Jesus' death on the cross. It's not that God chooses to ignore sin. It's that God went way out of his way and his son suffered to forgive that sin. And you can stand sure that if you've placed that faith in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation, that you will stand before him forgiven. But it can take a while for our own feelings to catch up, right? Sometimes we're just disappointed in ourselves that we did something bad or that we were something bad. I got to tell you, that's kind of dumb. It's actually pride. We're no better than anyone else. Let's go, let's go, let go of that pride that said that you were too good to commit a particular sin. You're a human. Sinning is what we do best without God. And then forgive yourself just like God is willing to forgive you and move on. Sometimes it's a secret thing that we don't want anyone else to know about. And as they do not know about it, we never quite find acceptance for our own struggles from anybody. And I want you to know, God wants your guilt and your shame to be washed away. Here's the great thing about the gospel. Everybody is unworthy. So nobody will get to stand in heaven and say, oh, I can't believe he made it. Oh, and she's here too? Wow. We're all unworthy. We're all about the same as Rahab was in God's eyes. Remember? All-seeing, all-knowing. God knows what you did that nobody saw. God knows what you would do if you had the chance, if you thought you'd get away with it. God knows what you think about constantly that you should not. Nobody gets to stand superior. The ground's all level here. So here we are with the story of Rahab, written into God's plan for the ages, God's plan for salvation, God's plan to bring Jesus to earth. Through her faith, she helped provide for the children of Israel to get into the land. Then she married into the culture and became an ancestor of the Savior, Jesus the Lord. Let's wrap up with some challenge questions to reflect on this week. Number one, how do I treat people who are willing to turn to God, but who are engaged in lifestyles I don't appreciate? We as a community need to have open arms and open attitudes for those who are coming from rough backgrounds. If we cannot do that, I really wonder whether we're saved at all. Right? I really wonder if we remember that we're just sinners too, forgiven because of what he did for us. I'm not better than you. And you're not better than me. And we are not better than anyone else. Never forget that. Number two, what do I know about God that he's asking me to act on? What is the step of faith he expects from me? We said that real faith brings about action. So do it. Act on what God is asking you to do. For some of you, that's salvation. Trust in Jesus for salvation. For some of you, it's the next step after that. Perhaps baptism, as was mentioned. Give him control. Let him choose your paths. Live the way he asks you to live. And inside of that, the options subdivide into dozens of possibilities. Share the good news of Jesus with your friends. Volunteer. Be a prayer warrior. Prepare to be up here teaching someday, maybe. Help out in blast. Find someone who needs help and do what Jesus would do for them. Just step out on faith and do it. The last one is more personal. What do I feel shame about? What do I feel guilt about? How can I address these going forward? If you are controlled and held back by shame, how can you address that? What do you need to do to overcome that? The first step, of course, is Jesus. I can tell you a few other things, but one of them is opening up and finding a good friend who can help you and not be judgmental about it. But there may be other steps God is asking you to do. Just do them. Don't be paralyzed. We close with this. Dennis Farina is a brother in Christ, a certified alcohol and drug counselor, and the Crisis Center Manager for the Adult and Teen Challenge Ministry in Chicago. He would understand Rahab well, not only because of who he meets at Teen Challenge and the adult division there, but also because of his own story. 
Before Christ, he was basically a mobster, an enforcer for local thugs and mob figures, a collector for loan sharks. You know, the kind of guy who walks in and says, great place you got here. It'd be a shame if something broke, you know, and then keeps breaking things until you pay him to go away. Or the person who comes to collect the debt you can't pay with broken legs. And he describes himself as someone falling farther and farther into drugs and alcohol until he was losing it all. I caught up with Dennis in a video call, and here's how he described it. Fantastic. Now, Dennis, as I mentioned to you when we set up, we are talking to the church family about the story of Rahab and how God doesn't worry about our past when he draws us in. He merely wants our faith. God. Can you share with us your own story of where you were when you found Christ and how that happened? Yeah, so, you know, it's a good thing he doesn't care about our past, because if he did, I wouldn't be sitting here today, you know. Um, so I came from a, a, a dysfunctional family. Um, there was a lot of abuse. It was, there was physical, uh, mental, and uh, verbal abuse, you know, and sexual abuse in our family. And through that, I've developed uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, a, a bunch of feeling deadening uh, tendencies, if you will, right? I didn't want to confront what happened to me when I was younger. So at a very young age, I started drinking. And, you know, that gra gradually led to, do, you know, smoking some weed and doing some coke uh, as I got older. And then I got introduced to painkillers. I hurt my shoulder pitching. And so for the better, for the better half of 25 to 28 years, I abused cocaine and I abused opiates. Um, my life was just in shambles. I mean, I, I lost a marriage. I lost uh, respect to my kids. I lost a couple houses. I lost three cars. Um, I lost a job. Um, and I tried to commit suicide. I, I didn't want to go, you know, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to go around anymore. I didn't want to be alive anymore. What is the hope for someone like this? me what the program is. It's a year-long faith-based residential recovery program. And um, I didn't know what it was then, but I know now that as I was kind of putting up my battle and fighting, like I'm not, I don't need that. I can do it all on my own. I just had this warmth come over me, man. I just had this warm feeling embraced and I felt perfectly at peace. And I said, okay, when do I, when do I go? You know, and I didn't know what it was then, but I know now that was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit just blanketing me, comforting me, and telling me, man, I've got this for you. You've tried to white-knuckle it. You tried to do it on your own. You can't do it. Put your faith in me. Put your life in my hands, and I will take you on a journey you'll never forget. So note how he took the first steps that as he heard the truth from God, saw that light, he walked toward it. It was not long before God brought him the rest of the way. I mean, I, I always believed in God. I was, I, was, I was baptized Catholic when I was younger. I, I, I believed, but I never had a relationship with God. I never had an encounter with God. I never had uh, a conversation with the Lord. Um, so that, that touching of the Holy Spirit on me that evening was the first time that I, I, I knew God was real. That was the first time I knew that, that he had my back, so to speak. So he's in a Christian treatment program. What happens next? And um, I was like, because the first couple of months, you're making some friends, you're trying to get acclimated, and you're still having some of the old behaviors. You know, it's not the drugs that are the problem, it's our behaviors. So you're still exhibiting some of the behaviors, the thought processes. But then all of a sudden, man, this light switch went on. It was like, man, am I really going to come here for a year and come back the same man I was? I don't want to be the same man I was. 
Um, I want to be a leader. I want to be able to go back and lead my family. I want to be able to go back and be a godly man. And what I needed to do was encounter the Lord and allow him into those painful memories that I had. Because I believed all the lies that Satan told me about me. I was a criminal. I was a drug addict. I was, you know, the world was full of good and evil, and I was evil. And I accepted that role. I said, man, that's fine with me. That's who I am. But about three months in, I started to realize, no, this is not who I am. This is not who I am. Who I am is, a, is, is the son of a king with a past that can be redeemed, okay, with, uh, 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 with draped in royalty, draped in purple. And I started believing what God told me about myself instead of what, I, instead of what Satan was telling me all these years. Um, so for me, it was really about three months before I really encountered the Lord and said, man, uh, you know, it's time, it's time to get real. It's time to get serious with God. All right. He trusted Christ as Savior. Was it hard? Did he struggle with shame? So, yeah, I did. I, I worked for some people uh, before my past life that, um, you know, we collected money, you know, and if people didn't pay the money that they were supposed to pay us, we, we hurt some people. Um, and I lived with that for a long time, even after I came to the Lord, I, I, you know, and, and came home from Teen Challenge. Because I, I would look in the mirror and see the man that I'm looking at now and say, man, I can't believe you were that guy. You know, I can't believe that you were so distorted and so hurt that you would go out and actually hurt people. Um, another incident that, that I don't mind sharing was before I went to Teen Challenge. I didn't have any money. And um, my wife now was my girlfriend at the time. You know, I stole her engagement ring from her first marriage. Uh, I stole it and pawned it. And I went and bought drugs with the money. And I got locked up. And I called her to bail me out. And she said, no. She said, because I can't find my ring. And God told me that you were the one that took it, you know. So even after, even after I came home from Teen Challenge, I would look at, my wife's name is Joy. And I would look at Joy. And she'd be like, what's wrong? You know, and, and I'd say, man, I, I still, and this was, I'm talking 15 years ago, okay, and um, she's like, what's wrong? And I say, man, baby, I, I look at you, and I still can't believe that I, I did what I did to, with your engagement ring, and she was like, Dennis, did I forgive you? And I said, yeah, and she said, you repented and asked the Lord for, for forgiveness, and he forgave you, and I said, yeah, and she said, well, you're not bigger than the Lord, so if I've forgiven you, and he's forgiven you, you need to forgive yourself. Did he ever find that some people would reject him because of his past? Sure, but over time, he's seen others recognize that God has changed him. Um, the people that used to cross the street when they'd see me coming, the people that didn't want to have anything to do with me when, I, when they saw me, people who wouldn't loan me $5 because of my background are the same people that are calling me now saying, hey, my son, my husband, my nephew, my niece is struggling with the same thing that you did. And I see what God and Teen Challenge has done in your life. And man, is there any way you can help them out? You know, and that's for me, not an aha moment, right? That's not a for me saying, I told you so moment. That's a God moment. That's God saying, man, you know what? I've worked in this man's life because we have to surrender. We have to be obedient. We have to be disciplined. And God works through our life that way. And then people see the power of God where he's taking somebody like me. And I've only shared two stories with you. I have thousands of them that, that are worse than the ones that I've already shared with you. 
but that take somebody like me in my past that can be redeemed and say, hey, now you're going to help this sister or this brother, whatever way you can. And the, and the truth is, I love it. I love doing what I do. All right. What can we learn from Dennis? Actually, it's the same thing we can learn from Rahab, right? Your past does not have to control your future. A step of faith to trust him as Savior and let him rescue you can make all the difference in your life. And from then on, your future is changed by him. Let's pray. Father, help us to recognize these truths and take them into our hearts fully, to walk toward the light, to believe regardless of what those around us are saying, to take that step of reliance and faith, to act upon what you've told us to do. For those who are here this day who don't know you as Savior, may this be the day when they take that step of faith and trust you. And for the rest of us, may we align ourselves with you in every way, because we know that you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen.